0: Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply, at all protected.
1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. In this segment, John, you know, one of the things that we've been talking with the students about off air, that is, you know, what their expectations and the anticipation they may have about graduating and then and getting a job. And uh, we got a volunteer in Justin to come up and at least give us his perspective of what his vision of his plan is while he's in school and then his afterlife once he graduates. So we welcome you to the show, Justin. And, and again, we want to try and get your understanding based on your knowledge of the market what the demand may or may not be, understand that you want to be a a professional pilot. So, I'd love to hear your perspective with regard to what you're doing to prepare yourself for the future.
3: Hey, Well, hello. Um, What I plan to do is get all my flight hours throughout my years in college. Uh, My freshman year, I plan to get my private pilots, commercial certificates, my instrument certificates. And uh, I hope to get a job as a CFI once I get my CFI uh, certificate as well. And I plan to get all my hours, my 1,000 hours uh, as a CFI since I get the RATP uh, restriction. Yeah, That's how I plan to get to the airlines, hopefully a regional airline.
1: And have you talked to anybody either through your college experience or friends that are already in the business as to the best route to take and and the best way to accumulate those hours and that experience? Um, I presume are you going to fly domestically or internationally? Domestic. Okay. So have you talked to anybody in the industry that has given you any tips and tricks uh, of what you should be doing now and then along your journey?
3: Yeah, some people have told me go to the Air Force go to the military, but that might be a, an option for me, but I don't want it to be my first option to go to the military. When I did my first flight, my instructor told me to, that being a CFI was an actual good job. He had an offer as a corporate pilot, and he rejected it to be a CFI pilot. And uh, because he enjoyed doing it, he had the flexibility, more flexibility than an airline pilot or a corporate pilot, and uh, he told me that was a good route to go as a CFI. And then eventually go to the airlines.
1: And do you think that your college experience right now is helping you succeed in giving you at least the tools and the fundamental background you're going to need to achieve that goal once yes, you graduate? It's
3: totally helping me. I used to say from seven to nine every day studying for the written exam, exam, and I passed it like earlier than most students here in Avon. So I think that's a, like, that's a, a very helpful tool, like to get a workshop here at the college that I wouldn't get at a, at a normal, um, ground school. Like my instructor, he wouldn't pass it to the next question in the book if I didn't understand, if one student didn't understand. Every student was top priority for him. I think that, that that's a good tool for in the, in college.
1: Well, the the big thing for, you know, a lot of your classmates and that is with the staff and you've got some experience where you have folks that have actually flown the line, have been airline pilots, are now in an instructor mode here. Have they been helpful? Have you approached them from either a mentorship or, hey, can you tell me about your experience? Is this a good choice? Should I be doing that? And if you haven't, why not? And would you encourage others? To do it,
3: yeah, I've talked to a few uh, pilots, airline pilots. There's one an instructor in the in the lab. He once told me that that a good option is to join the regional airlines and then work your way up to the to major airlines. That's one strategy that he told me. That go for it.
1: What would you say, Captain, with regard to this young man and where he plans to go? I mean, you're an instructor here. You, you know the student base. You, you see a variety of different students coming through here. I'm sure you've had students from a, a variety of different walks of life ask you your advice. What kind of advice would you give this young man about his career path in school and then moving forward?
4: I think I would give him exactly what others have given him so far. Uh, what I like is that he's, you're, getting, you're asking questions and you're getting different options. Uh, sometimes when you talk to people, they'll focus on whatever their expertise is. So if you talk to a CFI, they'll say, well, you have to be a CFI. If you talk to a, a military pilot, well, you have to go through the military. I think for where everybody is now, if you just get as much information as you can, from as many different people as you can. Also start to learn how to interpret what somebody's telling you. Somebody should have a good reason to suggest you do a specific thing, rather than, well, that's what I did, so you should do that. And the other thing uh, I was going to add is be open to suggestions. Sometimes I, I see freshmen, or juniors, or sophomores rather, that, well, this is what I'm gonna do. And I'm thinking, well, have you explored all your options? And that's too soon in your education to decide this is exactly what I'm going to do because you might be ignoring something else that might actually be better for you. So I think you've gotten some good advice. I I, I appreciate that you're tuned into these
1: different options. So it sounds to me like you're right on the right track. And Captain Shah, for people that are listening to our podcasts that are going to be flying outside the United States, they're going to be flying possibly in India or other places. What kind of track, what kind of information or at least guidance could you give them? Because flying in, uh, in that part of the world is substantially different. Than it is here, so any advice for those that may be listening, you know, because they don't necessarily have the same uh, opportunities, and of course, the college experience that Justin has. But what would you suggest based on what you went through?
5: So back in the in our country, you do not rec- we do not require fifteen hundred hours to get into an airline. I became an airline first officer at two hundred and twenty two hours. That's the experience I had when I got into the right seat. So there are many Asian countries they do take pilots at a very, very ab initio stages where, and there are a lot of ab initio programs that are run in these countries where they take a fresher from, just like me and you, we go, they make you commercial pilots, then they get into a cadet program where you get trained as per airline standards, and then you get absorbed in the airlines immediately. So look out for the organizations that run their cadet programs all around the world. There are many airlines that have their own cadet programs. In various parts of the world, Egypt has it, Ethiopian has it, we have it, India has it. Most of the countries, they do have the cadet program possibility where you be with that airline for a certain period of time and you grow with them. And if you like it, build your time there and then you can roam around or come back to your own country or explore other parts of the world. So there are options of getting into cadet program options as well. So, same as Singapore Airlines has it, you can become a second officer with them, then you become a first officer, then you become a captain, and then you can build your journey with a particular airline.
1: Now, you came back to the state or you came to the states and you converted your foreign certificates to an FAA certificate. Is that a, a requisite? Is that a necessary thing uh, to fly uh, overseas? Or is that something that adds to a credential base and gives you more mm-hmm. options?
5: I would say it definitely adds to the credential base and gives me more options because of the bilateral agreements that we have with other countries and because of the political tensions that we have with certain countries. Based on an ICAO DGCA license that I hold, there are certain countries that are not willing to take people from those parts of the world. To have an FAATP actually is an honor, and it's actually a, a privilege to have it on your CV if you have an FAATP, which is it's recognized worldwide. So it opens up your market significantly and you're not restricted to a particular zone within the globe. Now it gives me the opportunity to, let's say, go fly for China if I want to, or come, even come to the United States and fly for them. Everybody in the world, they recognize the FAATP. It's a great license to have. And that's when I got my Indian DGCA converted to an FAATP. And now it, the world is open for you. Anybody would take you if you have an FAATP.
1: And John, you know, given what Chinar was just talking about, does that exist with a maintenance A&P certificate or an IA where we have, you know, foreign uh, students and, and folks that are coming to the United States to get this FAA-issued certificate to take it back to a foreign country? Does it have more leverage? Does it have more status? Does it give them any more options in their opportunities? Uh, considerably. First
2: off, the the FAA Certificate for Maintenance, uh, the Airframe and Power Plant Certificate, is recognized worldwide. And actually, it's required for certain aspects of aircraft that are N-registered, that is registered in the U.S., and that's denoted by an N in the tail number. Each country has their own letter. Like G is for the U.K., for example. All right, so that mechanic Certificate is recognized by everybody because the, the training you receive is a good foundation training. In Europe, in other countries that use type certificates for each product. So, in, in the UK, for example, you have to qualify by airplane type for your mechanics license. So, that's a little different process. Both of them are the same. So, if, you're, if you have your AMP certificate, you could go stand for the test in the UK to get type certificated in their airplanes. But what's changing the game today for maintenance? is that these N-registered airplanes that are owned by leasing companies who demand that they keep their N number on the tail, regardless of what paint job is on the airplane, and they want the airplane maintained to FAA standards for ease of the next leaser, because sometimes airplanes only stay with the company for, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 years, and then the airplane's back going to be leased to somebody else. So they want the, the records to be kept in, uh, in the uh, U.S. system so it makes it easy to transfer it to another country. So, to that regard, they want to keep an AMP in the loop. Doesn't mean that every uh, work or every task on the airplane has to be accomplished by that AMP. It just means he has to oversee it and be responsible for the signing and return to service of that airplane. So, what we see is a number of people around the world wanting to get. An A.M.P. certificate. In fact, here in Vaughan, we have a number of students from foreign countries that are in the A.M.P. program just for that reason.
1: Great. And, and Captain uh, Allen, we had talked a little earlier about some of the barriers for the young people getting into the business. And while the demand is is there and it's it's going to exist for at least the next twenty years, does that guarantee anybody a job?
4: There aren't any guarantees. And one of the things that as I got older, especially, you know, the last half of my career and watching some of the uh, my fellow pilots uh, unfortunately lose their medical certificate, one of the things that um, it might be hard to listen to or talk about at your age is, but you have to be practical. So as pilots in a career... If you lose your medical for any reason, there are lots of medical reasons that would prevent you from flying, but aren't necessarily unhealthy. You could have a job doing almost anything else. I think to be practical, it's something that you should think about, so that the day you get all your ratings and the the day you get hired at your major air carrier, God forbid you lose your medical, what will you do then? Having a plan B. And as Captain Shaw mentioned, you know, flying is predominantly a skill that you can't really transfer anyplace else. So one of the things, again, that's good about Vaughn is you have other, within your degree program, you have options to take courses that will give you another career path if
1: you ever needed it. So I would give some serious thought to that uh, going forward. And I think that in your position, Captain Shaw's position, and and some of the folks here at Vaughn who flew the line and are now professors, the one thing is you're captains. So you have gained a practical management experience because you had to manage the cockpit. You had to manage people, not just the person sitting next to you, but the cabin crew and, and, of course, all the passengers back there. So you developed those management skills and that experience. And so if you couldn't hold the medical, at least you can exploit the fact that, yes, in this environment, I had to manage, you know, a group of people under these conditions and that kind of stuff. So that adds to the practical experience part rather than the theoretical or at least the the book smart process of of management.
4: Years ago, uh, a captain, when I was a first officer, explained that very thing to me. He says, you know, in effect... Uh, this is when I was the first officer on the 747. He said, two things. You're basically the mayor of a small town. And concurrent with that, you're the CEO of a small company, being a captain of an aircraft, because of all the different areas you're responsible for, just as you said. So don't uh, underestimate what you're picking up along the way that you may not even actually think about. But keep that in mind that you've got as you go forward in your career, you've got much more expertise whether you're a maintenance person, ATC, or a pilot, you've got more a broader range of expertise than you may than you may realize.
1: And Justin, you know, you were talking about the fact that you know you you're going to take the CFI or the certified flight instructor path to your ultimate goal of being an airline pilot. What do you think you're going to get out of being a CFI other than the accumulation of flight time?
3: Well, I would get to uh, know a lot of people, meet of a lot of uh, stereotypes, a lot of different pilots, the mistakes that uh, many pilots do, how to be an instructor, like how to manage someone else. That's another thing that I would get out of uh, being a CFI.
1: Because many, many CFIs, of course, and those of us that are talking uh, in the, on this podcast have have been around the industry long enough where we know that CFIs are droning around and holding patterns and the traffic patterns to just build the time to meet them, you know, a minimum qualification so that they can apply and go on to bigger and better things. And some of the folks that I've talked to in the past, they haven't really gotten what you just talked about out of it. It was to sit there, drone around, accumulate the time so that they can move on because they haven't, they really don't want to be there doing that. And you brought up a key word, management, how to You know, Learn to manage other people. As a CFI, that's a major responsibility, just like a captain, because you're always mentoring somebody. And so as a CFI, you have students who are looking to you to be the mentor, but you also have to be a manager because you have to be able to manage yourself, your communication. It's one thing when John and I talk, and I talk to him all the time, but if he doesn't comprehend and get my point and he just blows me off and walks out the door, then we talked a lot. But I didn't communicate because he didn't get what I was talking about. And I think that's one of the shortcomings. And if you, if that is your track coming out of college to be a CFI, you really have to hone those skills. Because as Captain Allen said, yeah, you're going to fly with people that you don't like. They have an attitude. They think they know more than you. In Captain Shaw's position, you know, the demographic of male and female in a cockpit. She's very experienced. We've had a lot of discussions. I know how smart she is. But the next guy who flies with her goes, you're a woman. You don't know what you're talking about. And all of a sudden, that's a barrier. It's a barrier to communication. It's a barrier to being able to function as a crew. And you're going to have to learn those skills. So you want to dedicate that CFI experience to learning and honing those skills rather than just droning around and accumulating flight time. And I'm sure that you see that and saw that a lot. I mean. You aspired to be a captain. You met all the qualifications. I know you I know you too well, so I know what you know, but getting in the cockpit with a male pilot, what were the issues that you saw just trying to do your job? Not educate it, but just do your job.
5: Very rightly said. It's just I would say it's just the mindset that people have that women can do a certain Kind of work, and they cannot do other set of other kinds of work. So once you break the barrier, and one of the greatest thing that helps in building building relationships is communication. If either maybe you're having a bad day, or the other person's having a bad day, or if his mindset is that, oh, okay, she's a she's a woman. She what does she know, or does she know any better? Try and engage with that person, trying to find out what exactly is that's bothering. Maybe he's had a bad experience with somebody else who was. I'm not saying male or female, but other captain who is who's not being so accommodating and who's not communicated well enough and he's just got that one picture of one person. Oh, captains are supposed to be like that. So there are many people who at the end of the flight it said, But you're so friendly to talk to. You explain things so much so much better. You make us feel like it's it's at home. We are at home. So it's the communication if you est- it's the basis of any relationship. May that be a captain or a first officer or anywhere you are, communicate. To speak up is another thing. If you have an opinion, just just say, I, do, I think this has to be done this way, so you have to be, do it that way. No. It's a two-man crew. Discuss amongst yourself. Watch out for the concerns the person has and eventually come up to a mutual decision and make that person a part of the team. Even though you're just two people, but at the end of the day, it's a team. And in aviation, it does not work if you don't function as a team. May that be your first officer. May that be your cabin crew, technician, ground staff, everybody. So if you just communicate, the barrier just gets broken right there. You, so that's what you call breaking the ice. And once you break the ice, it's then you just function as a team and you just forget whether you're a female or you're a male. It's, it's, it's irrelevant.
1: I'm going to pose a question to both you and Captain Allen. You get in the cockpit, you got a male first officer, it's obvious he has an attitude. He really, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to fly with you. How do you recognize that? And I know that you talked about, you know, establishing that communication. Maybe you haven't broke that barrier. Maybe you haven't, you know, established that relationship. How do you deal with that in flight? you know, because now you're flying with this person, not only on this two-hour leg here and a two-hour leg there, but now you're on an overnight. So, you know, you're going to be flying with this guy for the next three days and you have to put up with this. How do you handle something like that? Because it does take a lot of patience. You got to bite your tongue when you want to lash out and put that person in their place and that kind of stuff. How do you deal with it? Or how did you deal with it?
5: My strategy was so Back home, what we have is one sector, the captain flies, and the other sector is the first officer flies. So what normally people do is if you're going into places which are not the normal, like if you're not flying from an ILS to an ILS, but it's got something more challenging, I give them the opportunity. The first question I ask them is, which sector do you want to fly? So if they, you, if and not many people do that, they don't give you the option. They're just saying, okay, this is mine. This is yours. So first thing you do is put them in a spot and tell say, okay, you know what? You're flying this one. It's a subtle way of putting pressure on a first officer saying that, okay, now the captain's watching and I'm supposed to perform. And that kind of now he's more inclined looking towards you, that okay, if I mess it up, I've got somebody to look to. Rather than me bossing around saying, Okay, do it this way or do it this way. One of the other things that I used to do is I'll just let them be. First officers they are equally qualified as captains. The only thing is when a captain is required is when you have to do the decision-making in case of something which is not normal. But first officers, to me, are under-training captains. These are the people who are going to be on the left seat given the times to come. So you give them the power to make decisions. And it's okay if they don't exactly perform the way they're expected to perform. That's when they learn. That's when the learning happens. So always give them the opportunity to do things the way they're supposed to be done within the book. And I was known to be a stinker for SOP. So as long as you do it what's within the book, neither can he question me, neither can I. Obviously, as time passes and complacency sets in, everybody finds their own way of doing things. And when then you say, Oh, with this captain, it's fine, I can get away with it. I always had an impression you can't get away with her with anything. So you follow your books, stick to your procedures. And let them do what they actually meant to do. Don't I? And generally never boss around and say, no, do it this way because this is my way. Everybody in airline, airline world especially is being trained to a professional level and everybody's expected to do the job in a particular way. So if you do it in that particular way, I think it just becomes easy at the end of it. And make it fun. It is, flying is fun at the end of the day. The first conversation is, I'm not God. Okay, I have flaws. I know there are stuff that I may miss, even if I have some of the days you'll be like you're so overworked that you you feel fatigued. I say beforehand, listen, today I may not be at 100 percent. If you see, find, feel anything that you need to speak up for, please speak up. It's a two man crew. And that kind of breaks the ice immediately saying, okay, now you empower your first officers to speak up, to make their own decisions, and in return, make mistakes. And then your job as a captain is to make corrections, if need be, and take, take the responsibility for your crew. And that's when the whole dynamics change is saying, okay, people look forward to flying with you, and they say, okay, you know what, she's cool to fly with. I want to fly with this captain and that that just changes the dynamics of the of the cockpit but then there is other side of the world where the people first officer will be like i don't want to talk to you today i i just don't want to do anything except my job i don't like your face fair enough if if that's the attitude that's going to be then do everything within the book and let's take this baby from a to b, to b to b to c
1: captain i'm going to pose the same question to you because now the the dynamic is a little different because now you have a male interacting with a female and early on of course you know there was that stigma that yeah she's a female pilot you know she's qualified but she can't do what we guys can do i'm sure you experienced that what was what was your take and and in creating that relationship, because, you know, high stress, high anxiety situation, when you need to be working as a crew, the last thing you need is that barrier, having two people doing two different things or having that person not reacting. And now you're single pilot IFR in a complex machine with a distraction in the right seat. Right, right. So how? what was your, your tack? when it came to dealing with, you know, situations like that, both male and female, but primarily female, just because that has become still, to this day, a bit of a stigma in the cockpit.
4: Well, first, uh, my way of dealing with things evolved over time. You know, number one, is a brand new captain, uh, regardless of everything else, you know, you're not exactly comfortable in the airplane. So my first thought, I was thankful to have a first officer that had more flight time in the airplane than I did. So, and I've always been very open to, hey, you know, we are a team. I also recognize that we're also two different personalities. Some people like to talk a lot. Some people like to be just quiet. I've tried to take that into account. And, you know, you have to kind of mold yourself with the other person. As far as the male-female thing, I went to college to be an electrical engineer, and I had an internship at uh, IBM in college. This would have been in the early '70s. The electrical engineer I worked with was a woman, so that was a time when it would have been unheard of to work with a female electrical engineer. So my mother I had an older have an older sister. my mother was very proactive with, "Hey, women can do anything." So this is what I grew up with. So the first time I flew with a woman in a DC-9, little side story here, she had been rerouted and she was late getting to the aircraft. It was not her fault. The planes loaded, passengers were on board. We pushed back and I said, okay, go ahead and start the number one engine. And I looked up and I just started laughing because the first time in my career, I saw a woman's hand with red nail polish. And in the cockpit, it just seemed so out of place. I'd never seen that before, and I just started laughing. And I explained why I was laughing, so that definitely broke the ice for both of us. And the more I flew with specifically women, the more I realized that we both had the same experience going through aviation, of sitting in a cockpit, and at some point, somebody does not think you should be there. Uh, Having talked to women, pilots, uh, they've said the same thing, that when they talk to minority male pilots, our experiences are very, very similar. So to kind of go around in a full circle, the only time in 32 years that I remember telling a first officer that we had a three-hour break uh, in Newark, and I said, you know, I told him what my concerns were, and I said, when I come back to the cockpit, if you're still here, I'm going home because I was not going to fly the next leg with them. And the reason for that is because safety was being interfered with because of the friction between us. So I was giving him an opportunity to, back then, I said, you know what, if you call in sick, you go home, that's the end of it as far as I'm concerned. So if, if safety is not being interfered with, You have to bite the bullet sometimes. You have to just recognize, hey, we have personality differences. Most, the vast majority of pilots, even though they may have a problem with you personally or you being there, the vast majority of pilots will
1: do a professional job. And then, John, with regard to women in the hangar, because we're starting to see more women get into the maintenance side of the house, what kind of environment exists there With that relationship, because typically the maintenance hangar is is known for, you know, having more of an environment of a rough neck versus the, you know, the pristine cockpit kind of, you know, environment. So what's happening in the maintenance hangar for those women that want to get into being a maintenance tech and then, of course, dealing in basically a very predominant man's environment? It's not only predominantly male, but it's also a very
2: difficult male environment, much like construction work. Where there has been male dominated for so long, and the language is not uh, often conducive to mixed gender. So, and there's a lot of banter that goes back and forth that's pretty uh, rough. So, it takes a rather unique woman to break into that. It's changed considerably today, but I can remember the first females that uh, US Air hired into the ground crew, for either maintenance or cleaning. It was some difficult times as you were speaking, Captain. I was thinking back to my early days and there's probably a couple of events that I'd like to have back again where I could have spoken up and I didn't. It's tough. It's a very tough environment for women. It's better today. You know, we, we, uh, I run the maintenance skills competition where we bring about 500 mechanics into testing their skills and we have more and more women every year
1: and some of them are damn good. So that goes a long way towards uh, opening doors. I know you get emotional about talking maintenance. This is, and I'm going to give you a really funny story real quick, and then we're going to get on to another guest. Thank you, Justin, for for allowing us to quiz you (laughs) as a student and and what it is. Hopefully, you'll be getting something out of all of this discussion that will, will help you go forward. John and I, when we worked at the NTSB together, he was in one of those politically appointed positions where he thought that I had to answer to him, well, that was never going to (laughs) happen. That's how defiant I was of authority. But we ended up doing the value jet investigation. I was the investigator in charge. John was in charge of the public hearing that took place. And of course, the investigation centered around maintenance and, and Things that got on the airplane that shouldn't have been on the airplane. We get into this issue about maintenance and mechanics and everything else. And I'm sitting here. There's a room, I mean, a ballroom full of people, cameras, the whole nine yards. And I'm watching John as he's talking and we're talking and we're asking questions. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, he's going to start crying. And I mean, I could see his eyes well up. I could see that look on his face. And it's just like, what do I do? he's going to start crying. He's the board member. He's the face of the NTSB with all these, it's like, uh uh-oh, how do I handle this? Well, he got emotional because he has a passion for what he does. And I just let, I'm not going to go, hey, you know, man up. (laughs) This is what this business is all about. You're getting into aviation, whatever it is you're going to do. You're getting into aviation because you have a passion to be here. You want a job, go flip hamburger somewhere. That's a job. But if you really want a career and you really have that enthusiasm and that, and that drive to excel in aviation, then you have to have the passion because the passion is what's going to continue to drive you. It's what drove all of us, it's what's driven all of your professors to either be educators coming from the industry or just being an educator. There's a passion there. You can't lose sight of that. And I mean, I've been with John a number of times. I mean, he's cried on TV more times than I can count. I like got like Tammy Faye beat. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that doesn't happen with him is his makeup doesn't run. So, Come on up. This is a free-for-all, so we're going to try and answer questions.
0: Hello. I'm going to make this really quick. What's um, your name? Uh, David Stewart. David? I got my uh, a p license from here at Vaughn. I'm a Vaughn veteran. I served in the Navy for uh, five years. And so I'm actively working as a mechanic while I pursue flight training. I do uh, contract maintenance. I work on JetBlue aircraft. My first question is, because of the shortage, the uh, the major airlines, they're just snatching up all the pilots from the regionals. And I've heard, like, you know, if that's going to continue to happen, that the regionals might be in trouble. They might not exist within a few years. So my first question is, uh, how real is that, that the uh, regionals might be in trouble
1: Well, uh, I'll start the answer and and both of you chime in because Captain Shaw is familiar with what's going on here in the States and around the world because they got the same issue. I live in Colorado. There was an airline called Great Lakes. Great Lakes has been a regional carrier. They were flying Embraer's, the 120s, two-engine turboprops. They were really the stepping stone for the students that were coming out of uh, local college, metro college, and another uh, aviation-oriented college up in Greeley, Colorado. They were the stepping stone. So a lot of the students were, as soon as they graduated, went to Great Lakes. They built up time because they were a United express carrier. And then of course they built up the time and a lot of them ended up getting absorbed by legacy United. Because of this now quote shortage, they don't have enough pilots to fly their airplanes. They actually went out of business because of it. Now that was a wake up to the industry and really are pushed to try and get more bodies into aviation programs so that kind of thing doesn't happen. And while these smaller carriers, like Great Lakes, they weren't a big regional carrier, like a SkyWest who feeds you know the multiple airlines and trans states and some of these more established large regional carriers. These smaller carriers, not because of management, not because of equipment, but because of lack of bodies, pilots to put in those seats, mechanics to maintain those aircraft, that's where they're, the, the industry is going to see the first pains, if you will, of this shortage. In your case, I wouldn't be concerned with it because if you are going to get your, your ratings and certificates, you're going to have the, uh, the requisite time to go fly for a regional. There are always going to be regional carriers. Why? Because that's the way the air carrier industry is established. And Captain, I'm sure that, you know, you went that route. So you know that... That's the way we structured it. It, it. it is no longer a point-to-point when Northwest Orient Airlines and some of the more legacy carriers from the 50s and 60s existed where it was point A to point B. Now we feed those big carriers to go to point A to point B, but it's 1A, 1B, 1C that feeds those legacy carriers. So I think your opportunities to fly for a regional are always going to be there. At least that's your stepping stone, yeah. Can
4: I add one thing sure. to that? If you look at the uh, projection of how many passengers will be flying over the next several years, personally, I think the worst case for you would be that you would get hired directly into a legacy carrier. The need for the pilot jobs is going to, to exist because the growth of passenger travel is going to continue. Unfortunately, like you said, maybe a small carrier here, a small regional here might go out of business, but... They went out of business because those pilots went to a
1: larger carrier. And like with Great Lakes, they were considered um, an EAS carrier, that's Essential Air Service, where the government mandates that carriers service very small, out-of-the-way places in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, in little places like that. Well those essential air service carriers don't have enough supporting traffic, or in this case, they didn't have enough pilots to fly those EAS routes. And if you don't fly them and you don't fulfill the contract that the government enters you into, then of course you can't operate. And these guys, that was one of the reasons Great Lakes went out of business. They just didn't have enough pilots to fly their aircraft. So you're in good shape. My second
0: question is, uh, my second and last question, we are, uh, you know, The exponential growth of computing power is just, we're beginning to see automation everywhere. And so, because we have such a passion for, you know, being pilots, it's, you know, the big question is, you know, when will computers eventually take away our jobs as pilots in the future? And will I see that in my
1: lifetime, you know? Captain Shaw, you want to start with that? (laughs) You are... you. There is a term of art in the industry called children of the magenta line. That is those pilots that are coming up through the system that started very early in their age career don't know anything but all the automation. I'm old school Captain's old school and, of course, John's old school, where we had these round dial instruments. We called them steam gauge instruments. That was all round dial. We didn't have the ability to have a GPS. You had to actually look at a map and figure out the wind correction between point A, point B. And if you had an emergency, you had to look at a chart to find out where the nearest airport is. Now you just push a button. So a lot of you are growing up with the automation age and, of course, the the future discussion is we want to go to a reduced cockpit. We want to go from two pilots to one pilot and automation. And then eventually we want to just have an autonomous airplane that just flies everybody. Well, I've got my own personal opinion, but I'll start with Captain Shah about what she sees because she has grown up, at least in her career, the majority of time with automation.
5: I would say that's actually a little far-fetched. The reason is that It gives comfort to people to see that there are actual human beings in the seat to take them safely from A to B. So as long as that psyche prevails and as long as human factors is taken care of and we as pilots ensure that we are transporting people safely from A to B, I really don't see that going away in the very near future. Will it happen eventually? Yes, it will happen because that's where technology is moving towards. Unmanned vehicles, drones, this is the future. So is industry working towards having no pilots in the cockpit? Yes, they are. Is whether me and you are going to see it, it's debatable. Probably not. But as long as people want to see human beings in the flight deck to take them safely, we'll still have jobs. So okay. we will be in business.
4: What do you think, Captain? I think that the technology will definitely go in that direction. I mean, we're practically there now. But if you look at, like what Captain Short said, if you look at the public concern, if you look at will those airplanes be insured by anybody? Will the operation get insurance to fly 300 people around without pilots? I look for ways to make me feel better about, no, that's not going to happen. So, yes, the technology is definitely going to, Present itself. The other thing, when and if it ever happens to like FedEx and UPS, then I would start being a little bit more concerned. But there's still, a, to me, a huge insurance issue. And I can't imagine an insurance company anytime soon insuring. Uh, passenger-carrying operation without, with no pilots on board.
1: And the one thing that I think about when you ask a question like that, and let me just give you an example. You're all familiar with the miracle on the Hudson landing, the A320 that Captain Sullenberger put in the water down here. Okay, let's take Captain Sullenberger and Jeff Skiles out of that cockpit. You have the same issue. Airplane takes off, runs through a flock of birds, both engines roll back to flight idle, And now the automation has got to fly this airplane at its perfect glide speed. What decision do you think the automation would have made? Would it have made the decision to land in the water? Would it have made the decision to try and go back to a piece of pavement? The benefit of having a human up there is that gets back to really raw data. That is seat of the pants flying. Captain Sollenberger understood what the performance of the airplane was. He could feel it. He was actually flying the aircraft. Based on that performance, that tactile feedback, that's what influenced his decision. It wasn't the automation telling him, put it in the river, because the automation wouldn't have ever put him in the river. It would have probably taken him back or tried to take him back to a piece of pavement. And so as automated as a system can be, you always need a human as the intervening factor. Why? Because the best machine in any organization, that's a machine is the human because we can make better decisions, we're more adaptable and flexible because a human programs that machine, but it it can't program it for every possible situation. And in this case, you got an airplane hanging over the water that barely clears the Washington Bridge out there and the performance isn't there to go six miles this direction or four miles that direction. You're only going two miles this direction. And the computer doesn't have the ability to go, that's the best choice. At least that's my perspective. So like Captain Shaw said, yes, we're driving that way, but I think there'll always be a human to intervene because the machine can only make so many decisions. Can they fly the airplane at the best level of performance? Absolutely. But you still need the human to direct that machine to do the right thing or go to the right place. I know that, John, you uh, you wanted to chime in. Greg, I,
2: I would like to pull us back for a minute. We were talking about uh, issues in the cockpit involving uh, females. And the views that we were talking about were coming from people on the senior side of the Earth seniority. And uh, I'd like to have one of my students that's uh, at a very young age who's been very outspoken in class,
1: talk about women's issues from her point of view. Well, good. Well, she's outspoken because she probably got that from you.
6: (laughs) Hello, my name is Jismayor Sanchez. I'm an airport airline management student here at Vaughn. And uh, I don't know where to start. (laughs) 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 I see that there's a lot of issues regarding women in aviation. We spoke about this in class it turned into a really, really big discussion that I feel very passionately about. That I even got mad, but it's because I'm a female. <laughs> but um, I feel like women have a lot of p- potential nowadays, and I think a lot of people are not realizing that. Women themselves are not realizing that they have a lot of potential. I feel like everyone's very doubtful <laughs> towards um females. For example, um, what was in class that we said? <laughs> I can't remember
1: well, it's evident that you have a high level of confidence in your own personal skills, abilities, and knowledge, and it sounds like you have a passion because you're here at the university you've already it sounds like you have at least a goal in mind that you want to get into airline or airport management. So what drives you that you don't see with any of these other women, or you think that why don't all the, all women who are in this class or in this universe or this college? Why don't you think they have the same level of confidence to be able to go out in the workforce and do what you want to do or what Captain Shaw has done? Why don't you think they have that same level of confidence?
6: I think they they don't have that same level of confidence. It's because they're not gaining it. they're not gaining the same confidence from anywhere. As in, like they don't have mentors that are females, so it's harder for them to be like, oh i can do it too you get me like because girls they're not really into aviation because they don't see anyone like them in aviation so for example even to be honest most pilots are white right so most people think you know pilots are white i don't really see myself doing that because i'm not even white or something like that you know like it takes like a really strong mindset to do it on your own with like with not having like a Guidance or like someone you can look up to, and females, they I feel like they're just I don't like, so what I motivates don't bash you? them for I mean,
1: me? Yeah, what motivates you?
6: For me, I just don't let anyone cloud my judgment, and I believe women are super strong and they can do anything they want, and I don't really see the difference between the genders, so I'm not saying. Women are better than men. I'm definitely not saying that. I actually think it should be equal in the aviation world, and it is because women, women have the same skill sets as men, and they can get the same skill sets as men. There's no difference, if you understand what I'm saying. So, and I was even reading, and they said women sometimes are the safer option because they're less, they're not really calm. I mean, they're not known for taking risk or doing some something like. Yeah, let's not check the list, guys. Let's just go on the plane. Women are more like, no, we're checking this this list before we get on. Okay. And
1: with, with all of that being said, who's your mentor? Who's your idol? Who do you look up to as a female that uses you t- or that you use for that motivation and that, that continued drive?
6: Actually, what inspires me is when I see women. I don't have anyone specifically that I look up to i'm i'm pretty confident in what i do and i'm gonna keep trying my best and everything but seeing woman what keeps me hopeful though is seeing woman for example that she's here today in general i didn't know there was going to be a woman to be completely honest so that for example makes me feel really good it like gives me that hope and that little bit more a little bit more energy for the day to be like okay i can definitely do this you get me so i just think Girls, they just don't see enough women or they don't see any women in, in general. So they feel doubtful and they just don't feel confident enough to actually get into the world. And most of the time, there's not a lot of women in aviation too because most women don't even know about the aviation world in general.
1: Why'd you get into aviation? If With with that understanding and at least that perspective, why why are you here?
6: Because I, I got a job in um LaGuardia Airport just a regular job i just needed money so but then when i got there and i realized the whole commotion the environment and i got to go on the ramp which i wasn't supposed to do but i went on the ramp and i loved it it was so cool so i was like oh i have to do this i didn't even think about the whole male dominance and all of that i actually didn't really realize how dominant it was until i got into vaughn and most of my classes are just males and i'm the only female but With that being said, I don't care.
1: (laughs) Okay, so if you were standing in front of a class and we don't know who's listening to our podcast, hopefully there's a lot of people around the world, give me a soundbite that you would encourage or at least project to women based on what you see, your perspective. What would you tell them they should do if they're thinking, well, you know, I don't see anybody in, or a lot of women in aviation, I'm going to go... You know, a different direction. What would you say to them to encourage them to stick with going into aviation?
6: To have tough skin, you have to be tough in the aviation world for sure. You don't have to change yourself either. I definitely want to say that. Like, I think girls, too, since they see only males, they think, you know, I have to be a little bit more guyish, more manly. But you don't. You could wear a full face of makeup and still shop in Sephora and want to become a pilot. Well, you look or, at uh, Captain shop yeah. <laughs> 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 Or you could be a mechanic and still wear lipstick. It's okay. Just do what you want to do. Follow your passion and don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Just have that tunnel vision and accomplish your goals because it's going to happen. As long as you don't let anyone cloud your vision or you start having all that self-doubt as in, I don't see any woman. Well, then become the first woman to do it. So I think you have to be really confident in the the aviation world as a woman and anything's possible.
1: That's awesome. I mean, that's, see, that's, and and for us, (laughs) I'm a male trying to convey a female, you know, encouraging message. And and it's difficult because it's not going to be received as it should, even though the intent is there with the same message. And so I appreciate the fact that you projected that message. And I know that Captain Shaw, in all of our discussions and our previous podcasts with her, she projects that same message because, yeah, there were barriers, just like you're seeing there are barriers, but she blasted through them, you know, regardless of what anybody else thought. And I see that other women in this class, young women in this class, are, are here for a reason. And as long as you can encourage each other to keep going, especially when, you know, it's like, man, I don't know why I'm doing this, why I'm putting up with this, especially because you're hearing other people talk about you. What are you doing here? Why are you here? There's no place for you here. There is. And that whole stereotype has got to change. And like anything else with discrimination and all of the other things out there in the world, We got to break those barriers and you guys are going to continue to be those, those trailblazers to break down those barriers, you know, and, and John and I, and I know that the rest of us in, in this aviation business, we don't look at it as a gender business. We look at it as a skills business, a qualification business, you know, why? Because you know, as much as me, you can contribute as much, if not more than me. I don't care if you're female. I just want to know what's in your head. I want to know what's in your heart to accomplish this mission, whether it's aviation safety, airport management, being a pilot, being a, it does not matter. It's just that the voice is a little different. John's kind of a manly voice. You're definitely a female voice. So. But we appreciate you uh, providing that input. We really do.
4: Greg, can I add one thing to that real quick? I appreciate what you said because you gave me a perspective that I had not had before. When I started in flying, I didn't have any role models as as a black person. However, I'm a male and all the pilots out there were males. So that was a direct, okay, well, they're men, I'm a man. It never occurred to me that for a woman, there are two degrees of separation. Not only are there no women pilots that you're aware of, but every pilot is a male. So that's two ways that you have to overcome. And that's a lot of extra emotional weight on women that as men, we have to understand that better. And as uh, the first contact in the the field, whether you're a, a mentor, a teacher, a flight instructor, it's reminding me that the first contact with a, a woman student is to point them, hey, show them a book of, look at all the women pilots that are out there. One quick thing I, I just read a few, a few weeks ago, there are more female astronauts in the United States than I forget what the criteria was. And it made me think, oh, sure, you know, being an airline pilot was too simple. So they went right to being astronauts. So, you know, as men, we have to kind of get off of the pedestal we put ourselves on. Well said.
1: Our next guest.
7: Okay, my name is Bas Maged. I'm Egyptian air traffic controller, currently studying at safety management system certificate here in Vaughan. So, okay, you're speaking a lot about pilots, female pilots, I would speak about being an air traffic controller, one of 30 female air traffic controllers among a male-dominated, of course. The aviation is male-dominated everywhere, but I'm one of 30 among 700 air traffic controllers, okay? And I'd say, because I'm aerodrome radar controller, I'm one of seven among these. So I chose even more specific thing. Okay, I'm here just to say that I really like the way you're handling everything because this is the way I'm doing this. So, in the very beginning, I would recall the first time I entered this industry and I had this uh, teamwork because I believe in that this is a teamwork, okay? Being an air traffic controller, we are handling responsibility between and among each other. So we have to be um I have to make sure that I understand how it works, not only how my work is done as much perfect as possible. No, I have to make like peace at this environment because I care about human factors as well. And I've been like an air traffic controller instructor, trainer and human factors instructor. So the thing is you have to know how to deal peacefully. We have to know that the man, okay, we are doing it now speaking about men, he has to know that she's professional enough to do her job. And that's his right, to feel like that he's confident. So it's okay. This comes with time. It takes time. It takes situations. It takes handling. It takes to do your job following the ICAO like standard and uh, whatever you have to do, you'll do it. Each time with each situation, it comes. Trust is something that's, Belt each with each situation. So it takes time. This is what I'm saying. What I'm saying is because women should be like encouraged. I, I like one word here. I like that they don't, we like, girls doesn't see so much female in this, in the aviation thing. So I saw uh, pilots in Egypt. We have uh, female pilots as well. Air traffic controllers, I told you we are 30 among 700, so it's not like a number. But I can say that uh, the 30 of us, we were chosen among 7,000 applicants, so it was competitive.
1: What motivated you to go into that very male-dominated endeavor or career, given what you knew going in and the competition that you were going to have and what did you really think your chances were of one being selected, but two actually, you know, being able to break into that very dominated profession?
7: Okay. A, because it's very unusual. It's a challenge. And I like this. I like this concept being challenged to do better. Okay. Um, B, because it's not for everyone. Being an air traffic controller, it has certain qualifications. It's not for everyone. It's not about gender. No, seriously, this kind of pressure, this kind of uh, decision making process, and so on, this information you have to like over and over upgrade and read and everything. It's not for everyone. So this is what I respect. It's informative. What's my chances? Well, I believe that everything has to be like to do your best at certain time. For example, what's my chances to be the best I can be in my certificate. I just will do my best, will read and do the research, everything as much as I, could, I can do. And this is, I believe, personally, I believe that this is the only way to do things right. You have to concentrate to do your best and to leave the rest and you'll have your, like, whatever outcomes, okay? So this is my perspective.
1: Well, I appreciate your perspective because, like Captain Shaw, this is not just a problem here in the United States. This is a global issue where here in the United States and other places where we think we've broken these barriers and the glass ceiling doesn't really exist and it really does exist and things like that, it's always good because, again, you're a voice. Other than the male-dominated voice of the flight safety detectives, the fact is is that you bring another perspective. And we hope that through your perspective and, and all of the students that have participated, that other people listening to this will be encouraged because now they go, yeah, I really don't see a lot of women or I don't really have a, um, a mentor or an idol. That's not to say that they still can't at least focus their energies and, the, and and demonstrate their skills, abilities, and knowledge in getting into this still male-dominated industry. So, I really appreciate you, you know, breaking down that barrier, coming up and talking on the air with us because I think it's important for everybody, but a lot of the women around the world to hear that message, because uh, John and I, we believe in it. We believe in that message. We've talked to Captain Shaw about it, and you know Captain Allen's been here to give us his perspective, because as a minority, whether it's because of your color, your race, your gender, it doesn't matter. I was a minority when I went to work in the government in the job that I did. Why? Because I was young. Mm. I was young compared to everybody else. And I had those same barriers. What do you know? Why should I listen to you? You're a young punk kid coming out of college. Where's your experience? So in different ways, we all experience that. And it is passion and perseverance that break us through that. I don't care what he says. I don't care if he's been in the industry 30 years. This is what I want to do. And this is what I intend to do. And I will do it and and so i appreciate the fact that the words of encouragement coming from you that echo i think what everybody at least the, that's been on this panel all believe in and we will continue to believe in it so thank you very much for doing that i wanted to just say that you know the fact that we are here at vaughan college and we are getting the student perspective i believe is a valuable tool not only through this podcast and i I know we're going to do more podcasts because it is your voice. It is your perspective as a young person now getting into aviation. John and I can only talk about it from the outside because we've already been there. We've already established ourselves. And now we're in the waning years of our career. Well, John is. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is, is that we want to continue to see what your perspective is, because as we've talked about before, we are here to help you succeed, not to see you fail in any way, shape, or form. And I think we have time for at least one more comment, question. And John, I will let you make that introduction so that people know who our next guest is uh, asking a question. We have with
2: us now Dr. Maxine Lobner, who is the Dean of the Managing Program here at Vaughn. I could never... Not have her speak, because she's my
1: boss. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now the truth comes out. Now,
8: (laughs) thank you so much for coming to Vaughan College to bring the Flight Safety Detectives podcast here and to bring the delightful and accomplished Dr. China Shah here. We're really delighted to have you come, and of course, our faculty, Captain Allen, as well. This is a, a fascinating and interesting discussion, and I wanted to, of course, chime in. I'm female. I grew up partly in South Africa during the very evil uh, system of apartheid with legalized racial discrimination. So I've thought often about prejudice and my understanding is that it exists on a continuum from the very extreme things that we see in terms of genocide around the world to dislike and then to the very subtle but equally difficult to deal with invisibility, where people don't think that they dislike somebody who's disabled or too young or the wrong color or the wrong gender, but they just don't see them. And in many ways, that's the hardest to deal with, because if you're speaking up, nobody's hearing you. What we have learned from people studying how to overcome and how to mitigate this kind of prejudice are some of the things that I've been hearing today, including we know that when people have exposure to people who are different from themselves, they start to learn that in fact they have more in common than are their differences. So I would really urge the students here as you go out into the world to spend time actively talking about who you are, what your background is, where you've come from, and trying to show others that Despite our differences, our external differences, our superficial differences, we have more in common, and it's more important to get jobs done, whatever they are, by looking for that commonality. That also requires communication, and certainly what we've heard is a willingness to work hard, and I think if you feel that you're a minority in any situation, there is still that obligation to work harder (laughs) than the others to address that kind of unfair balance by dint of your own efforts. And I I hope that that does change and that everybody can work equally hard and get equally rewarded. But until that balance does shift, we do have an obligation. And I think that having the mentors, the friends, the social support wherever we can helps us to keep working hard. I know my friends certainly keep me going when I think I'm at the end of my rope. So, thank you, and and shows like this definitely help. Thank, thank you, you
1: very much for those comments. Those uh, those are great ending comments. I just want to say a couple of things. One that. Despite all of these barriers, what keeps me going and kept me going but keeps me going even to this day, and I think for the rest of us, it is the passion that we bring to this because the passion is going to continue to drive us regardless of what the paycheck reflects or what people may think. It's the passion that will accomplish that goal. And that's what it's done for me for the 40 plus years now I've been in aviation safety business and and being a pilot. So you can never lose sight of that. And, and that is the driving force. It will be reflected at some point in a paycheck, in stature, whatever the, that may be. But I didn't get into the safety business. John didn't get into the safety and maintenance business. And both captains did not get into the front end of that cockpit for any type of glory. It's the passion to go fly, the experience of flight. And whether you fly it, fix it, or manage it, it's that passion regardless of anything else. And so I just want to say thank you to, uh, to Vaughn College for hosting us and hosting the Flight Safety Detectives. I know that John, I talk to him on a regular basis when he's coming and getting ready to teach. He has nothing but great things to say about his experience here. And I keep telling him, bring me in. I want to have that same experience because I too love to give back. That's what it's all about. That's why uh, Captain Allen is here and and that we brought in Captain Shaw because we want to try and give back. We want to try and at least educate to a higher level about those subjects, about those issues that you've thought about, but you don't really have anybody that you can turn to to ask, or you may not think, well, they'll think I'm stupid to ask that question. Trust me, the one thing in aviation that we've all learned, there are no stupid questions in aviation at all. And we still ask each other questions to this day. It may be basic. It may be rudimentary. But you know what? I want to hear somebody just reinforce what I think I already know. And if I don't and they educate me, then I've been schooled in a positive way. And that's what it's all about. So I want to say thank you to Captain Allen. Thank you very much for being on this show. Captain Shaw, as always, thank you. Thank you. Do you have any parting words most honorable John Golia. <laughs> Nobody
2: in the podcast knows about our little little uh, discussion this morning. When we walked into the facility on the uh, little advertising board that they had, they used my official title as the honorable John Golia because I've been confirmed by the U.S. Senate and you get to be called honorable for the rest of your life. I got them fooled. Uh. <laughs> and we know you, so
1: we know that that honorable has the the letters D I S in front of them. So, <laughs> so I will say I'm very proud of the students here today. Great job! Yeah, and and again, we appreciate you spending you know a good part of your day with us, and we look forward to again getting your feedback. And those of you who are listening to this podcast, if you have any interest in, in providing feedback on the show, you want to communicate with John and myself, or even the folks that we have talked to uh, on the panel, both captains, and we, we do have a lot of industry connections, please reach out to us via our, our email. That's flightsafetydetectives, with an S, at gmail.com, because that's the way we understand what you're understanding as far as the podcast, the good stuff, the bad stuff, you have any suggestions and if there are questions that maybe you're interested in you heard a student talk about you want to know more please let us know and contact us through our email and or our website so again on behalf of myself and my colleague John Golia the thing we will say for this podcast is thanks again to Vaughn College and fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation.
2: Thanks for listening.
3: At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now.